for me, it was a spiritual choice. And so it was very, very violent, actually, to see. At the time, I didn't have the language. I didn't know it was violent. I didn't know how to relate to it. But the perception that people started to have of me in that school with that scarf was just at the opposite of what the values that they felt that someone who's in the school must embody. Hello there, I'm Yonka Kamara. Welcome to Kume Turning Point Diaries, where we share stories of critical moments in our personal and professional lives. Hey y'all, welcome back to Kume Turning Point Diaries podcast. I'm so excited to be back. It's been a minute since the last episode. I hope that you all are healthy, happy, and safe wherever you are. Um, I'm doing well. I am now gainfully employed. Yay! As many of you know from the podcast, I was laid off in October and, you know, it was it was hard at times, but this the period of unemployment really afforded me time to to rest, to reflect and rebuild and and for that I'm deeply deeply grateful for. I I was able to, you know, really lean into my storytelling craft during that period of time and also develop new skills like building a website. Yes, guys, I built a website for Kume Turning Point Diaries. So please go and check it out. The website is called kumehouse.com. I will put the link in the show notes for you guys to check it out. I really see this as a place for our listeners to engage and dive deeper into each episode and hopefully, you know, when we can start recording in person, have some behind the scenes and books and all kinds of stuff. So be patient with us, but let me know what you think and how we can make it as engaging and interactive as possible. And now for this week's episode, I chat with my dear friend, Amnata Ja. Amnata is a phenomenal person, as you will soon find out. In our conversation, she opens up about the first time she wore hijab in Paris. She was a student at the time, and this dramatically changed her lived reality. This is a story of accepting yourself and holding onto your values in the face of other people's criticism. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I'm still reflecting on so many of the things she said. So without further ado, here's Amnata Ja. Hello, Amnata. Welcome to Kumet Turning Point Diaries. I'm so, so excited to have you on the show. It's been a long time in the making. For our listeners, Amnata is a dear friend of mine. We met in grad school. I'll tell you the story about how we met in a little bit. Um, Amnata is a design thinking consultant. She currently lives in Senegal and just all around amazing person. And I'm so excited to finally have her on the show. Amnata, tell us a little bit about yourself. How are things in Senegal? Yes. So thank you, Yelka. I'm feeling great to be here. As you said, it's been so long in the making. Uh, So I'm in Senegal. The weather is very nice. Uh, 20 degrees Celsius. Um, uh, And yeah, I'm here. I work from home. I live with my parents. Uh, it has been a long time since I left after my high school that it didn't happen. So I'm feeling very grateful to be able to spend that time with them. Great. So what brought you back to Senegal? Because you just mentioned that it's been a long time since you've been back in Senegal. You left in high school. What brought you back? Um, 
<laughs> That's a very good question. Graduation, I graduated. I graduated in May from the new school. Uh, and then the pandemic hits. And when it hit, it, it just generated a lot of questions for myself. Where do I want to be if the borders are closed? I was living with my sister at the time and it just reinforced within me. My sister and I, we have a very closed and very great relationship and she had a baby. And so I became a nanti and she was also coming to Senegal for the holidays to see my parents. And as I was transitioning back to transitions and just reflecting about professional choices and where do I want it to be, I think for the first time I felt I wanted to be based in Senegal for some time and to give it a shot because I lived here when I was very young and till that moment I came back, lived like one year, six months, three months, but I never really set an intention to be here. Mm -hmm. And this time the intention was to live here. And can you see yourself now long-term? Yes. <laughs> yes. I can see myself here for, for some, some years, a couple of years. Take us back to when you initially left Senegal. Um, what was the reason? And, you know, um, yeah, just take us back to that moment. Um, was that a critical point in your life? Yes, I was a teen. I mean, I wasn't a teenager, but I was 17 years old. I left Senegal. I went to Paris. So it was right after I had my high school diploma. It was my first time leaving Senegal for that long. I've left it to go on holidays, but I never left it to go live somewhere else. It was my first time living without my parents as well. Uh, so it, I will definitely say that it was a turning point in my life. And it was the first time I went in Europe. So I went to live in France, in Paris, um, as someone who, yes, looking back, it was, it was a transition. It, it, so many things happen and they happen all at the same time. And I think for the 17 years old self, me who was starting a new school, a high league school in the middle of Paris, and at the same time figuring out where to live, what to do, having my bank account for the first time, just a lot of things that I never got the opportunity to do. Because in Senegal, when you live with your parents, you don't have to do those things. Um, I think it was my introduction to adult life and starting now to be responsible for my own choices and doing things without people having to tell me you have to wake up at that time and do this and do that, but just being responsible for myself. Yeah, I, I definitely can relate to that, like going away to college. I went off to Occidental College in Los Angeles and it was like a big change as well for me, right? It's you're, you're on your own, right? But I think mm. at the same time I was in the same country and you're familiar with the culture and for you it wasn't. Did you have a family history of people going abroad for education um, or were you the first one in your family to have the privilege of going away and what was that like? Um, yes, actually, thank you for asking that question because I never realized how impactful it was. My sister, uh, went away with my brother actually the same year so for my sister it was different because she didn't have to wait until she had her high school diploma she participated in a contest where she turned out to be um, the one of the best Senegalese students and she got offered an opportunity to go to her high school in the United States right so she left and then my brother when he got his high school diploma he also went to France but he went to a southern city of France called Montpellier 
which is a very different city <laughs> from Paris. But still, he went, he left and he went to France. And my mom, actually, my mom, when we were very young, and I was just a baby myself, uh, she already had us, three kids. She was married here. And she left <laughs> to go pursue her studies uh, during two years in France. And at the time, it was really, really not common for people to go and especially for women who has married like with three children to go and we were with my dad's and he was really supportive and I think that family history of of just um, my parents and their support in our education and my brothers as well and also my family's friends so my parents friends that are like uncles and aunties and really like close moms and close dads who also just supported us in that journey. I think it made it much more easier for me to be able to have access to the information I had access to, to be able to apply to the school I applied and to be able to pursue the kind of education I pursued. I'm curious to know, because for many people, many people on the continent, you know, their understanding of blackness doesn't become a thing until they go abroad. Can you tell us a story or moment when you were in France that kind of was like, oh, I'm Black, or you began to understand your identity in a new way. That's true. Before I left Senegal, I never defined myself as a Black person uh, because being Black in Senegal is the norm. <laughs> Most people, everybody is Black. So not being Black here, that's what is really exceptional. So when you see non-Black people, that's when, I mean, when I was a, ch when I was a child growing up, um, you see people who look like you in majority. And so I remember my first time getting in Paris, the airport, even the cold. First, I felt so cold. I got there. It was the beginning of, of September. I was like, oh, my God, like, what is this weather? I've never, I've never felt that cold in my whole life. I was like, there's something deeply wrong with this. I don't understand what's happening. And, um, and then just walking and seeing people and seeing that people who look like me are actually not the norm. But in Paris also it's different because in Paris it's a very cosmopolitan city. You, you not, for instance, when I went to visit my brother in Montpellier or when you go in little town in France, that can be even more um, powerful to see the difference. But in Paris, you will see a lot of black people. Uh, you will see a lot of different people. But in my school, I remember I was in a very niche program. It was called the Europe Africa program. So we actually had different people coming from all over Africa. And even that was a shock because I was in Senegal. And sometimes growing up, I felt that Africa is Senegal. <laughs> I've never had exposure to, to some extent I did, but to so many extent, I didn't really know the continent and the different cultures and people who came from it. So I think for the first time it became, because I wasn't in Senegal and because I wasn't in, in, in Africa, my African identity and my Senegalese identity and my black identity became very strong. People started to identify me as black, as Senegalese, as African. And I started to identify myself as that in a way that I haven't before. And even missing my country and missing the continent, I felt I needed to, to reclaim and I needed to own and to speak about this is where I'm from. This is who I am. Um, yeah, but that's a very powerful question. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I also have a follow-up question because not only are you an African woman, right? You're also a Muslim woman, right? And... Um, were you wearing a hijab? Because currently you do wear a hijab. Did you wear a hijab at the time? 
No, that's a very funny story. Actually, I started to wear the hijab when I was in my second year at Sciences Po. So Sciences Po, for the one who doesn't know, it's like Paris Institute of Political Science. It's one of the high top elite school in Paris where we had like French presidents that came from that, a lot of French ministries. French political elite usually come, come from that school. So in that sense, it's also a very conservative school to a lot of, to a lot of extent. So I, I remember to this day, now, now that I remember where I was, what I was wearing when I, when I decided to wear the hijab and just the, re, the reactions of people. For me, it was um, a spiritual choice. And so it was very, very violent actually to see. At the time I didn't have the language. I didn't know it was violent. I didn't know how to relate to it. But the perception that people started to have of me in that school with that scarf um, was just at the opposite of um, what the values that they felt that someone who's in the school must embody, which for them is freedom and freedom of choice. And for them, the scarf is deeply at the opposite of freedom. <laughs> so you must be some type of slave to decide to put this scarf on your head when people have fought so much to liberate you and to free you from the fact of doing it in the first place. So it was something very interesting to navigate especially without having the language, without having the emotional intelligence that I do now to be able to understand my emotions and name them and understand how certain actions and certain decisions are coming from that place. And also have the empathy to also understand people's fear and, uh, and, and also where they come from with their own history and backgrounds. But yeah, I started to wear the hijab in Paris. It was something. Oh, wow. And what you mentioned, there was a spiritual um, reason. Do you mind sharing what that reason was? No, at all. So what happened was, so I grew up in Senegal. Um, so Senegal, for those who doesn't know, for those who don't know, um, the population is majority Muslim. So we have a country of 96% of Muslim and we have 4% Christian. And so I grew up in a Muslim household. My parents were practicing Muslim a religion and faith and spirituality was very strong in our household. And I separate the two because even though we grew up with the Islamic rituals and practices, um, like our parents um, made sure we learned the Quran and know like the basics of the religion and how to pray and how to fast and how to practice that. And at the same time, I still remember my dad having many Buddhist books um, and being like, God is in many places. And they are all, there are a lot of people who are seekers of God. And so also learn about all the cultures and traditions because it's going to reinforce you in your own culture and your own tradition. And so I, I grew up being very centered in my, in my Islam and at the same time being open and curious to many other uh, cultural traditions. Um, and I think growing up, I never considered myself as a religious person. It was quite the opposite. I felt like I, I wasn't religious at all and I needed some type of savior to, to really help me come back to my senses. But when I went to Paris, it was weird. So I remember like fun stories at, 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 at home. We will, like, my parents will always be like, you have to pray. Like the five prayers are, um, are among the obligation pillars, uh, the obligatory pillars in Islam. And so like growing up, praying was not even an option. And I remember I used to do all kind of different jokes to be like, oh, I prayed when actually I didn't pray. 
you know, and like I will do all type of drama and like put water on my face, put water on my body and be like, oh, you know, I did my ablution and I prayed and it was lies. It was all lies. And then I'll be like, oh my God, I would end up in hell. But you know, just that that's guilt of child and not really following the rules. And then I, I went to Paris and, and for the first time, I think it's also being in a foreign country by myself, missing my parents, missing my country. I started to ask myself a lot of philosophical question. I remember my first time taking the subway because in Senegal, we didn't have subway. And so I remember taking the subway and there were all of these people running to take it, to not miss it. And there was another subway coming in one minute, but people were running as if them taking that subway, like their life was depending on it. And I started to think, what are we all running towards to? What am I doing even here? Like, why did I came here? What if what I, and there's a Senegalese um, author called Sheikh Hamid Dukan who wrote a book called L'Aventure Ambigu. And in that book, he says, what if what we are going in that quest, what we're longing to find, what if it's never equal what we left behind us? And I remember thinking, what if I'm here and I'm looking to get educated and maybe to get a job and maybe to get rich, but am I going to find back my parents whom I left home? What if they die? What if something happens? Like, where do we go when we die? So I started to ask myself all of these philosophical questions. And I started to, we didn't, we didn't have the four seasons in Senegal. We, I didn't grow up seeing the, the autumns, the fall and everything dying and then, and then winter and then spring where everything starts to bloom again and come to life again. And so just seeing nature changing and dying, I started to observe and everything was really um, a reflection point for me. And for the first time in my life, I felt the presence of God. It, it wasn't something that somebody told me do this or do that, but I felt I wanted to pray. I felt there was a presence next to me. And even when I was by myself, I wasn't alone. And so for the first time, taking the hijab was actually the first time um, I was listening to a video and the person was saying, do you love God? And I was like, oh, my God, like, what does this even mean? Do you love God? Like, what does it mean to love God? And the person was saying, we don't really think that we need to love God because we believe that God loves us and and we don't have to show it to him anyway. But then I paused and I felt when I love someone in my life, I need to show them that I love them. I call them. I want to offer them gift. I want to be present for them. So if I want to show love and appreciation for the people that I have in my life, what should it be with the one who created me? Um, and there's this saint in Islam whose name is Rabia. And she says, I, I read her poem for the first time. And it was an ode, which was like a poem, a love poem dedicated to God. And she was saying that she loves God so much that she cannot imagine to pray God to go to paradise. And she was saying in her poem, she was talking to God and telling to God, if you know that I'm worshiping you to go to paradise, then I'm praying that you put me in the most elevated of hellfire. And I was like, wow, what type of love must that be? And then she was like, she loves God so much. And at the same time, she's so afraid of him, afraid of hurting him that she doesn't look at the sky because she's afraid of meeting the eyes of God. And I felt fascinated by those love stories and people in that quest of loving God. And I remember I just felt in my heart, I want to know what this type of divine love is. I want to be in the presence of love and of God. And I, when I was wearing my hijab, I really had no idea what that was. And so I just prayed 
and I just said, listen, dear God, I don't know what I'm doing, but I know that I want to love you. I don't know what it looks like right now, but I want you to help me love you. And this is why I'm wearing this hijab. Oh my God. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's not like that. Wow. Everything you've said is just so beautiful and resonates with me so deeply, right? Because I also grew up, um, I'm from Sierra Leone and Sierra Leone is, well, Sierra Leone is 50-50, but I grew up um, in, I identify as culturally Muslim. My, our family is Muslim, but like we were not big on practicing. I think for my parents, it's really about kind of similar to your dad about God is in many places, right? And so there was more an exposure to different uh, religious practices and that, you know, it's not about showing outwardly your belief, right? It's really what you do for yourself and that God is home, right? So, and I really remember my dad sometimes would just meditate and he's like, meditating is prayer, you know? God is within you, God is home, right? And so for me during quarantine, something, I just, you know, I picked up, I have a little uh, Quran and I, I picked it up and I started reading it. And I remember even calling my other sister cousin <laughs> and asking her about it because she's, you know, she's more um, pious. She's not a practicing Muslim. And, you know, she's like, okay, get this app. You can just um, play it, you know, when you're home and stuff like that, just get that in you. And then during, you know, also during quarantine for the first time in many, many years, we fasted. And it was the best month of like one of the best months of my life. Like there was just something, this inward journey of knowing like this communication and space that I've never felt, right? It's like, not that I ever felt like I had to, I never felt the pressure that I had to prove to people that I was Muslim or anything, but there was like a pride in me and knowing that there were people around the world that was doing this at the same time that I was doing it. And it just deepened my faith, right? And and I think, especially with everything that's going on in the pandemic, you need faith. And maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was really this idea, this need to really believe in something that things are going to change, right? That led me to really um, to spend more time in cultivating my spiritual self. But but yeah, um, and slowly I'm getting into it, <laughs> getting into it. And you know, sometimes there's a push in. Um, pull between like you know what I feel inside and versus what I want what people might say about me outward you know what my outward presentation is and constantly reminding myself that like that's that's none of my business what they feel and see is you know it's what's more important is like who I am and what the relationship I have with God right so so thank you for sharing that Amina, I'm curious to know how you personally felt, you know, once you had the hijab on, right? You you just explained mm. about how, you know, people at your school were reacting to you, right? But how did you feel walking down the street having hijab? You know, thank you for asking that question. I still remember how I felt when I started to wear it the second day. So the second day I went, I was still in Paris and I went to, uh, to, the, to the Parisian mosque. It's like a very grand mosque, uh, like the main Parisian mosque. I went there because it was a Friday. I went there to pray the Friday prayer. And, and I remember I felt so free and so beautiful. I remember 
getting ready and, and wearing my dress that day for the first time I looked at myself in the mirror and I felt beautiful, which is never something I, I never related to myself as beautiful. That's not something I, I, I was relating to myself with, but I looked at myself with that hijab that day and I felt, wow, I am beautiful. And I just felt like I was floating. It's really weird, but I really felt that first day, like I was floating. I was happy. I was feeling, I was feeling like I was like, I was, um, you know, when you're on the ocean, and the first time you learn how to float, and I remember it was my brother who taught me how to float. And he used to tell me, but you have to relax. You really have to relax. And I'm like, I'm relaxing. But he was like, no, you're not. But I was very contracted because I felt afraid of droning, that if I relax, I'm just going to drone. And he was like, but you have to relax. And I remember the first moment I relaxed, like that second, it was like paradise. It was like I was floating and the sky was blue and the sun and the wind on my skin. It was like that very feeling of infinite freedom that I was touching on that day, walking on that mosque. And there were other Muslim women who were wearing the scarf. Every time they will meet me, they will be like, Salaamu Alaikum, which is peace be with you in Arab in Arabic. And it never happened. Like, I was always Muslim. <laughs> These women were always around. Like, they never greeted me. And every time someone will see me, someone who wear the hijab, she will look at me and be like, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And it was a sign of community. Like, we see you and we wish you peace. And for the, now, I wasn't just on my own. I, and, I, and I saw them too. And I wish them peace. And we were able to see each other and to wish each other peace because it was a symbol of we do share something in common that we have the same love for, for God and, and for this path and for Islam. And for a simple scarf to be this powerful was, was incredible. And at the same time, I remember my friends being very scared and worried. Like, what's happening to you? Are you okay? Is someone forcing you to wear the hijab? And I remember I felt like I needed to reassure people that I was the same person and I wasn't going to change. I wanted to reassure you, listen, I'm still me. We're still going to have fun together. It's still okay. You can still come to me and tell me all of these things. And so I think I felt, um, I felt also scared of being rejected. And I felt compelled to show that I was still the same person and I remember the best advice was actually a very close friend to me his name is Muhammad and he told me listen you don't have to prove anything to anyone you're doing what you believe is best for you maybe you're going to change maybe you have already even changed and that's okay like you have to accept it for yourself and not put yourself in a position where you want to reassure people that you're still the same person because chances are you're not and that's perfectly okay um, so I think there was that. There was fear, definitely, every time you hear stories of someone who wears a hijab being killed or being molested or being attacked just because she's wearing a scarf. So suddenly your religion is visible. Suddenly it's not just something that you're living inside of your heart. It's something that people can see. Oh, like she's reclaiming herself as being from this religion. And then she might be extremist or she might be conservative because otherwise she might not feel the need to do this. Um, and also sometimes anger, because in Paris, it was very clear and it has been told to me in a very clear way and repeatedly that me as a black Muslim hijabi woman, I cannot have certain jobs. I cannot be certain things. I cannot do certain things. So I remember going to interviews and actually even here in Senegal, <laughs> it's not just friends. It's not just the U.S. Even here in Senegal, a country where 96 percent of Muslim uh, people are Muslim. I remember interviewers, recruiters, HR people telling me, 
listen, you're just making your life very difficult. Is there any way you can just take it away? Or is there any way you can maybe wear a wig? Or is there any way maybe you can wear it differently? So it's not signaling what it's signaling right now. Um, so I think being confronted with the reality of, okay, this is a part of my identity. And at the same time, being <clears throat> seeing that part of that identity um, closing certain doors. And, and I remember one day I called my mom crying because I was in Paris and I was trying really, really hard to look for an apprenticeship. And that was never a defining factor. Every time that I didn't get a job, I didn't say it's not because it's because I'm, I'm I have a hijab. I felt okay. Maybe I didn't prepare enough myself for this interview because I never accepted to go there. <laughs> because once I go there, I, I, there's anything I can do about it. So I always refused for myself to choose it as a narrative to define me or to define the opportunities I can get or not get. And so, but th but from that was just I, I felt that I had to constantly edit myself and edit those inner stories in my head telling me oh this is because you're this and then telling my head no 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 like we're not feeding into this story we are who we are and with this hijab and with everything going on we're still going to be able to do the thing that we dream to do um and still one day i broke down and i called my brother and my mom and i started to cry and i was like maybe i'm never gonna get it maybe that's okay um just meant to do certain things. And my mom was like, if you believe it for yourself, then fine. Because once you start believing this for yourself, it's going to be the reality that defines you. But no, I think all of a lot of emotions. Um, but till today, I think I'm very grateful and happy that I made that choice. And it's been still 2013. So it's almost 10 years now. So I think um, I'm doing it. Yeah, it is very, very powerful, Amina, your story and um, the point about, you know, that unique act, right? The unique act of just putting on that hijab, wearing the hijab for the first time, just altering everything around you, right? The lens that you see the world, the way you view yourself, right? And your own narrative, right? And then connecting that with other stories that you've read, right? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, it's, it's so powerful to frame it that way, actually, because it's like, what's a story when, when we think about it, right? What, what's a story when, when we don't even know, like there is, there's a story, there is, there is the making of the story, there is the awareness that the story is being, is being made and, and, is, and is happening. And, and then there's even the, the awareness that the one who's even living the story can step back and observe one's own story and look at it from a different perspective and even shift it and reframe and, and readjust the, the story, right? Um, so the way it's framed, it's so powerful because it opened up so much for me in terms of realizing all of this was always in me. Even before the hijab, the face, the relationship with God, the, the fact that I was beautiful, the fact that beauty is in me, that I'm made of beauty. Uh, the, all the people who were there, they didn't appear just because now I started this unique act. But what that unique act did for me is it shifted so much in me that it allowed me to access that reality that was already in me and also around me, but that I was seeing without seeing. It's like I was observing it, but I wasn't present to meet that reality and be present with that reality and be present with myself in a way that I can see myself in a new way. Uh, so, so definitely, I think sometimes 
there are things that happen in life that can seem very small or insignificant. And at the same time, they allow us to just shift perspective and see things we were not seeing before or see them in new ways, see them in ways we were not seeing them before. And for me, the hijab helped me see myself in ways I didn't see myself before, see the external reality also in a way that I didn't see before, and even see that that external reality, that there's a difference between me, my essence, who I am in my essence, me and the perception I have of me, and the perception other people have of me. It's all different realities, but dancing in the same reality. And at the end, it's up to me how I decide to reconcile all of those realities, what I give power to, what, what I give my attention to. And even, even when there are those realities that sometimes can be conflicting with one another, they can also be in harmony with one another. Uh, and I think there's, there's so much beauty and that's kind of the, the L'Aventure Ambiguous or the Ambiguous Adventure, the book of Shehamidou Khan, it's that story of that person who, who went, so there was this, this discussions, endless discussions around, should we send our sons to, to, the, to the white schools? And, and there was this, this amazing lady in the book who told them, well, let's send them so they can learn the, the art of winning without being right. And there is something that is extremely powerful and sad in that sentence, that sometimes we might be wrong. And depending on what's right and what's wrong and how do we define it, all of that, again, is reality and the stories we tell ourselves and what lens we decide to apply or not. But right, maybe sometimes we can know in the truth and the sincerity of our heart that at a given moment, we didn't do the best choice for ourselves. And at the same time, that choice can be acclaimed and, and, and celebrated as a victory when we know in our heart that it isn't. Um, and so I think for me that unique act is still a victory today because it was something that I did to live in alignment, in close alignment with myself. And it's something I do every day to live in alignment in close alignment with myself. And then in that reality, well, I embrace all the other realities as they are and myself in that reality. Wow. <laughs> See, this is why I'm constantly in all of you, Amina, just beautiful. Like when you speak, I'm just like, oh, tell me more. So after you were in Paris, so you finished, I, I assume you stayed until you finished school. And then what happened? Yes. So after Paris, I spent five years in Paris. And in between, I came back in Senegal. I been, I lived in different countries. So I think it was also an interesting time just in terms of travels and discovering countries and meeting people. And I still have lifelong friends I've really I'm in touch with from that time in Paris. One of my best friends is from there. So um, it, it was, I think, the structuring years of my life. Um, and then I came to New York. <laughs> and then I came to New York. So the story there was I decided to do um, I think I was just longing. I was searching. I was searching for my path. I was searching for my path. And by that, I mean, I came to school and I've always had these big ideas in my head, but something that was always clear. And even when I was a child is I wanted to do something that I felt was above me. I wanted to do a work that I felt was work that mattered. And at the end of the day, I've always 
I remember even when I was young, which is crazy because I was just a child, but I remember thinking, I don't want my life. I don't want to just leave and die. And that's it. I wanted to feel like I have lived. I wanted to feel that I want my life every single day to feel that I'm alive, to know why I'm doing this thing that I'm doing. And I think for a long time, that drive, it, it served me well. And at the same time, it generated so much fear of missing out that I never stayed in one place because I always felt that I needed to move. And I was always afraid of missing out on things. And so I think that fear, um, that's by identifying that fear that I decided, okay, um, actually, I don't even know what is it I'm supposed to do. So maybe what I'm really supposed to do is just be at peace with myself and, and, and enjoy every moment in life. Um, and that's when I found the peace necessary to actually live here in Senegal, which wasn't the case uh, for the last almost 10 years. But to answer your question, I was searching for that professional path that felt fulfilling, where I could wake up and, and do something that I felt was important, something that brings me joy, something that I felt was also participating in making this world a better place and also find my community, people I appreciate doing it with, people who also appreciate me for what I bring. And I think for a long time, I didn't find, I didn't even know what I was looking for. I just knew when it wasn't what I was looking for. So I've been I had so many internships, so many professional experiences, been to so many organizations. And every time I could just pinpoint, huh, this is it. This is nice, but it's not it. And I don't know where I just found the courage to keep looking, to keep going. And so when I had my uh, master's in Paris, I was offered a job. Um, and I remember at the time I was married, I had my friends, you know, when you like after five years of study and you kind of feel settled, you feel comfortable, life is, life is not bad, life is good, but I felt there was more. I didn't know what that more was, but I felt there was more. And so um, I got my admission letter from Parsons, the new school. And I felt so connected to that school, even without never being there, just by going to the website, by reading the stories, by talking to people to, to who've been there. I just felt like it was an incredible community of thinkers and researchers and creative people and doers. And I felt inspired and, and, and driven to go there. And so I took a leap of faith and I went to New York uh, after Paris. So that's what I did. And I remember it was, was it second semester of graduate second second semester of graduate school <laughs> right I remember we ended up because I had I think we've been in the elevator a few times but there have always been like a crowd of the yeah. people right can you believe that like now you can't imagine being in an elevator with more than two people but it was like usually more packed right and so there was just this one time where it was just the two of us and we both I think we're both very friendly people we both looked at each other and we we're like I think for me, I saw an African woman that I said, hello, you know, and then there was just like this instant connection, you know, like this, we got each other. Because um, we were both into, um, not interning, but we we're working student workers, right, on the same floor. And, you know, when I would go to get coffee or get, you know, tea, not, you don't drink coffee, but tea or water, I would just stop at your desk or you would stop at my desk and we just have these conversations. I just love those conversations so much. Every time we talked, there was like a new perspective onto things. And then also remembering like, because I'm a little, a few years older than you and I'm thinking like, oh my God, she's so, she's so mature and just worldly for her age. 
and, you know, and then I found that you were married. I was like, wow, this is, am- this is incredible. I'm like, this woman, she is living all kinds of lives. Um, but yeah, so how, can you go back a little bit to um, getting married? Um, was it somebody you knew from home or um, what led to you getting married so young? Uh, I mean, in a, in a Western society, considered young, but maybe not in West Africa, not in your community. Maybe that's not young, but like what led to, to that? That's interesting that you, <clears throat> that you did this distinction between like age perception in a Western um, context versus in West Africa, for instance, when here actually, when you're 23, 24, you're not married, people start to tell you like, huh, the clock is ticking. What are you doing with your life? And, uh, and, um, but no, me, actually, it was, it was interesting. I wanted to get married young. I had this idea of marriage um, growing up. And it's also deeply related to my parents. Sorry. To my parents growing up, watching my parents. So um, my dad and my mom, they're from Senegal. Uh, So actually my mom um, is from Mauritania. Like her parents are from Mauritania, but my mom was born in Senegal in Chess. And my dad was born in Rufisque, which is not Dakar, Dakar. Chess is actually another region. Rufisque is within Dakar, but it's uh, far from the city. But, you know, like both uh, here, they they did their studies here. Um, They were married here. Um, Middle class people, family support. Um, I'm saying this just to give a context. And and still growing up, I've seen a a lot of love from the two of them. Um, I still remember like my mom dressing up to go to watch a movie with my dad or my dad buying her flowers every Thursday. And so I, I grew up being a romantic and, and believing in love. And also like we used to have this huge Sunday uh, like um, lunch where we'll just cook like so much food and like my grandparents um my, my, my parents' friends, they will come and there'll be a lot of laughter, a lot of stories. My grandfather was actually a storyteller, a conteur, like we say in French. Uh, and he used to tell stories. And my mom is a sociologist, but like she, she used to sing and uh, she used to sing in a band. So just those stories. So I think growing up, I just wanted to, I, I believed in love and I still do. And I also had this image um, a lot of time people describe marriage, at, at least from my generation, what I, what I, what I was hearing uh, in my 20s from my friends and from people was, and even from older people, it was um, because my mom's generation, actually, they got married very late. Like they were like political activists. <laughs> they were from like the left movement. So they felt like, like to, to be in a relationship was to collude with the system, you know, like they had all of those ideas in their heads. So they actually got married very, very late. And so from from them and from, from, from those aunties and uncles, the perspective was actually, you have to live your life and do everything that you want to do and then you get married. So I've always received this message and this narrative that describe marriage as the end of something. So actually you get married when you have your life figured out already. When it's clean, clear, you made it in your career, you, so, so you already established and now you, you enter in a marriage. 
and and I don't know. I felt I felt uh, yes. I think a hopeless romantic, just believing that marriage is actually the beginning of something. And so I wanted to get married young. I wanted to. I, I, my vision was we build something together. We grow up together. We don't have to be accomplished or established already, but we're doing all of that. We're building our dreams together. Um, that was the first element. The second element is as a practicing Muslim. And then when I decided to take the hijab, I also made a, made a vow to like um, a vow to 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 not engage in intimate relationships with men anymore. And so from that decision came also um, a choice of lifestyle of not engaging in long term dating relationships because it wasn't in alignment with wanting to respect some of those boundaries that I have put for myself for spiritual reasons. And so to me, it became a conversation about what do I need uh, as a young person to, um, to enter in a marriage and to be able to do it successfully. But uh, yeah, so those are some of the elements that, that were driving my, my thinking at the time. And I met my ex-husband at, uh, at school, actually. I met him at Sciences Po. I was giving a presentation. It was a lecture. Um, and, and he was there with a friend. And I, and I still remember, I still remember the day. It was actually really amazing. He was there and we connected. And I was like, huh, are you Senegalese? He was like, no, I'm Gambian. But he was Senegalese who lived in Gambia. He was just fooling me around. But, uh, you know, just the joking and the talking. And then we got to know each other a bit more. And turns out our families in Senegal also knew each other. Uh, and, and we dated for a year in Paris. Uh, and then we were in love. We, were, we decided to get married. Uh, so that, that was the story. And so I was finishing my master at the time in Paris. But still, the idea I had of marriage was we married, but we're still doing our separate lives, which is why even married, I still came to New York. So I think looking back, I also maybe um, there were a lot of elements that wasn't fully formed. I just had a vision of it, but practically there were practical consequences that I might not have completely think through at all levels. But uh, yeah, we live and we learn. Going back to your idea of marriage and love and, and life, right? I think so many of us, depending on what we see, we romanticize that, you know? And I think for even for me on a personal level, I've always said to my friends, I'm like, I want to have the marriage that my parents have. My birth parents are separated, but I was raised by my father and my stepmom, who I call my mom. And you know, I've told, I've told you about them. And I admire them and I admire who they are as individuals and who they are as a couple and what they've built in terms of a family, right? And I don't know if I always tell them this, but I, I've always felt it. But as I get older, you know, I have to I have to realize for myself that we're in a, in a different environment, in a different time, and I have lived a different experience. Therefore, my expectations of marriage can be the same. Yes, I can take things from it, but it can be replicated. And that things that might have worked for them or that they would have settled for, you know, a compromise on might not be the things I would compromise on. I'm curious to know what finally led you to end your relationship. Because I do remember um, you, you took a gap year. <laughs> we finished our first year of graduate school. Well, your second master's at this point, my first master's, you finished and, you know, and you were like, I'm just going to go to Senegal. Next thing I know, you were not coming back. <laughs> you're like, 
<laughs> you're like, Yoko, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna take some time, you know. It's been a while since my husband and I have been together, you know, we're gonna be in Senegal together. And I was like, this is wonderful, this is great. And so, you know, I was like, oh, this is wonderful, this is great. You know, I didn't really think much about it. And, you know, we communicated that gap year, but we didn't really talk about your marriage. I was I didn't ask, we didn't talk about it, you know, for whatever reason. And um, and then I graduated and then I was still working at the university and we ran into each other because you had returned to complete your program and we were just talking and then you just dropped the bomb. <laughs> and, and to add the shock was during my first year with you. I was always talking about him all the time. Everything was always about my husband, my husband. <laughs> so can you tell, tell us what led to the demise of that relationship or the demise of that idea of marriage you had no that's so funny to listen back to this sequence because it's true it, it was a gap year and I've never would have imagined back to story and reality right and a unique act and how that unique act can completely transform the whole reality um, by taking my gap year I would have never imagined that by the end of it I wouldn't be married it, 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 I mean if somebody told me that even in my wildest dreams I would be like no it's not possible Right. Because I took it in the first place to be in that relationship. But I think what what emerged for me, even till today, as I reflect about that, the marriage and the ending of the marriage and the healing of that relationship is that I entered in my marriage with a lot of insecurity. Um, so and, and that's interesting. Right. Like growing up, um, how how I had all of this belief about myself, about who I am and who I'm not. And even entering that relationship, I still, I still had a very abusive and unloving relationship with myself. And at the same time, I was longing for a loving and healthy relationship with another being without even knowing how to give that to my own self. And, and in that sense, that relationship was mirroring my relationship, the relationship I had with myself in in, in, and, and that was, I think, to, to today, that's my biggest learning. What, what ended it was to be able to face myself and to come out of denial and to realize no matter how much I can love someone and no matter how much someone can love me, when two beings, are, when that love is actually self-destructive, it's, 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 at least for me, the decision was, I believe it's healthier for me. I, I think, and, and the reflection was again, that, that, that book, I keep coming back to that book of Shahamidu Khan really. And like when you leave without knowing that what you're going to find is better than what you're leaving. Because when you're leaving a marriage at some point, there's this whole question of maybe life is just like this. Maybe couples, that's what marriage is supposed to be. And growing up in West Africa, you hear a lot of stories around how marriage is suffering and marriage is pain and marriage is just something that you have to, to endure until some point and then it's going to get better right and i remember one day i was so heartbroken and i never opened up to my parents about anything that happened in my relationship and then one day i remember i wrote to my dad a letter and i remember i sat for my mom for the first time and i broke down in tear in front of her and she looked at me and she said and for that i'm very grateful that i had parents and especially parents in our context because in our context parents can be the one actually trying to force people to stay in that relationship for a lot of reasons um, but my parents, they liberated me one more time and they reminded me to trust my heart and to follow my inspiration. And I remember my mom telling me, honey, 
marriage is made to be fulfilling and harmonious. And yes, there are moments that are difficult and moments where we compromise as you've been sharing with like your parents and how they were compromising and maybe the thing they compromise for are not things you're ready to compromise for. But she told me at the end of the day, people do those compromises and they stand in relationship with one another because what they share is bigger than what separates them. And at the end of the day, if you die today, all of this will disappear. And so I think contemplating death and asking myself, am I really living the life that is in alignment with myself? And the answer was no. And the fact that I wasn't living the life that was in alignment with myself and I wasn't being loved in the way that I needed to be loved created an environment where I was just deperishing. I got all kinds of different illnesses. And again, um, all of that was just sometimes sickness was a tool for me to escape my own reality and to try to tell people, okay, come save me when I'm the one who can save myself all along. I would try to have people come and pick me up from those, from those situations instead of taking responsibility for my life and taking accountability for that which I know is true in my heart. Um, so no, my, my marriage was actually my greatest lesson and my greatest teacher. It, it taught me that I cannot give what I don't have and I cannot receive also what I don't nourish and cultivate and nurture in my life first. For me to be in a loving and healthy relationship, I need to be loving and healthy with myself first. And um, when I'm insecure and I want somebody else to validate those insecurities, um, well, it's just the opposite. Uh, most of the time, power dynamics are born from those insecurities and we and the power dynamics are fe insecurities feed power dynamics, right? So even with the people we love, when they feel insecure um, and we try to reassure them, there can be a tendency at some point to use those insecurities against them. And that's destructive love. And I think um, no matter the intentions and the good intentions we had with one another in entering that relationship, we didn't have the tools to lovingly uh, be there for one another. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And I will be sure to include the link to that book because you've mentioned it. I haven't read it. And I, it's also a book that my father has put on my list to read for some time. There's so many books, but I'll also add it to our reading list because every year I put together, well, this year, this was the first year. You, I don't know if you remember, but on Instagram, we put together like a spring um, reading list of like books that have been mm -hmm. turning point for folks. So I'll be sure to include that book this year as well. A thread throughout this discussion has been acceptance, acceptance of yourself, acceptance of change and being comfortable with other people, their perception of you, as well as their perception of the world. So can you, can you just talk about that? For me, that was such a strong point that you made, you know, by talking about the, your hijab journey. I think that's a powerful framing to use, especially acceptance of oneself, of one's story, acceptance of change, of a situation, regardless of what it is, acceptance of what is. And it, it comes back to also my first class of design thinking. The first principle of design thinking is to accept what is. The reality is what it is. It's not what we wish it could be. It's not what we want it to be. It's what it is. Now, it's only by accepting that what is 
that we can actually work with what is to maybe make it better or make the most of it. But how can we design a successful intervention within a system when we are addressing that system um, differently than it is in the first place? So I think for a long time, I haven't accepted my internal system <laughs> back to point of accepting of, of oneself and, and one story. Um, and I think my journey is still a journey of learning to accept myself and my many selves, because I think sometimes we talk about, oh, just be yourself. It's like this quick concept that we always hear, like be true to yourself, be yourself, stand up for yourself. But what self are we talking about? Am I talking about the lazy self me <laughs> that loves watching all mug movies and Bollywood channels and, and just chill? Am I talking about the, the hijabi self uh, am I talking about the romantic self? Am I talking about the self that lived in Paris for five years, the self that lived in New York? Am I talking about the daughter, the role that I play with my parents? Am I talking about the sister? Am I talking about the self that was an entrepreneur at some point and then pivoted, right? So what self am I talking about? And I think most of the time we want to be accepted for who we are but we don't accept ourselves and our many selves as they manifest in our lives. And the different situations, they come to trigger those many selves. For me to see my selfish self, my needy self, my loving self, my compassionate self, and at the same time, the selves that I'm not so proud of, right? The self that are jealous, that can manifest and be very envious, the destructive self, the insecure self. Um, and I think learning to come to terms with all of these selves and to see them in the light and to embrace them and to let them dance and to let them scream when they need to and to hold them with love and acceptance. I think by learning how to do that, I'm also now learning to accept the people that I love and all the people with their many selves and to not define them with just one of those selves, to know that maybe one day, one of those selves might manifest. And that might not be the self that they're the most proud of or the self that helped them shine the most. And that's Brian Stevenson um, in Just Mercy quote that best summarized that when he say, we are, all more, we are all more than the worst we've ever done. And I think when we reduce people to a unique act, back to the unique act, right, to a unique moment, to a unique situation. It's related to when Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie was talking about the danger of a single story. We are all the compilation of so many stories, of so many moments, of so many colors, and we want other people to see that in us, and at the same time, we are close to see that in other people. We like to put people in boxes when it doesn't serve us to see them in the light and to see them, even sometimes ourselves are conflicting with one another. We are the best one moment and the worst manifest on the other moment, but we all of it. We all of those parts. Um, yeah, and I think just that lesson that I'm still learning and I'm failing and uh, I'm learning again, like Bernie Brown is saying, even when you fail, you do so daring greatly. I think now I can, and now that you frame it that way, acceptance of oneself, of one stories, of one many stories, and all of that is change because we are dynamic beings. Uh, things evolve, those selves evolve, they manifest differently, we see them differently, we get to know ourselves a bit deeper every day and others every day, and the situations every day. And I think as long as we open to flow 
and to just keep learning and keep being open and staying open to that flow of life and stories and colors in all of the pain and great joys. Uh, I think that's my prayer for myself and that's a prayer for the one I love and that's a prayer for all beings visible and invisible that I know and that I wish I can know one day. Thank you, thank you. And I receive that prayer, right? <laughs> I am so grateful for that prayer and I, and I send it back to you, right? Um, thank you, Amina. This has been such a wonderful conversation and I'm so grateful that we waited um, to have it. You know, like I said, um, it will happen when it was supposed to happen. There were many times where I was just like, oh my God, I just need to get her on. But, you know, I think we, it, this conversation would have not um, turned out the way it could have, you know, it, it turned out if it was, if we didn't wait, yeah. right? It would have been rushed and maybe some yeah. of the, um, the wisdom and the lessons that you would have, you shared, you might've not been in the place to share them at that moment. So everything happens, you know, again, accepting, accepting change and accepting the moment, right? So, so thank you for that. And just on that last theme of acceptance, and that's not something that popped up when you asked me about my marriage and what I've learned from it. But I think something also that we, that is usually very difficult to accept is to let go and to let die. Um, and, and I think it's also part of acceptance, acceptance that we can love people and still miss them and still decide to walk away and still love them from a distance and be in a state that is healthier than one that is destructive. And love can take many forms depending on the seasons of our lives yes, and yes. also to accept those many forms as they come and as they emerge. I think there's also tremendous lesson of acceptance of just letting go mm. and that there is courage. It takes tremendous courage. The same way it takes courage to stay and fight for something, the same way to let go and go and leave mm. and make that choice also takes a lot of courage. Yeah. So for anybody who needs both type of courage because we usually need them both i pray that we also have the courage to do whatever is needed at the moment that is needed yeah i remember seeing something um a while back that said courage is fear walking right mm. and oftentimes we we're unable to accept things because of fear right maybe even to put on a hijab because of the fear of how people we react to us, right? But the courage to put that on is that fear walking, right? Um, so, so yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's beautiful. <laughs> I don't want to take credit for it. I can't remember who said it, but it was a quote, and I was like, "This is good." You know, this is really, and those are things like, I, like almost like affirmation, reminding yourself constantly, right? That and redefining what courage means, you know. Yes. Um, for yourself, yes. you know, and yes. unique acts like that is courageous, right? It, it doesn't have no. to mean you, you know, um, you do something so outrageous, right? That gets written about, but little things that you do can be courageous. And um, yeah. so, so thank you, yeah. Amina. Do you have anything else? And just one last thing to close on that thing of and actually to, to close where I started with that book of Shehame Dukat. I don't know how it came to me so many times today. I'm very amazed. It was by meant this book. to be. No, no, sometimes, <laughs> yeah, sometimes you talk, there's just like that one book that you realize, oh my God, this is that turning point for you. You know, that book that like was very enlightening in so many it ways. It keeps 
it keeps coming back. Yeah. But then I think it's it's that whole question of will by when when we go there, is what we're going to find better than what we're leaving behind mm. us, right? I think that interrogation, we can never know. And that's the whole sense of courage. Mm. We take choices at a given point in time, not knowing what's happening in the future, not knowing what's waiting for us. We have faith that things might turn out in a certain way. And at the same time, they might or they might not. But there's the unknown and uncertainty. And I think that sentence of fear walking has all its sense when we can still be afraid and we can still be unknown. We can still stand in the uncertainty and the not knowing of many things and still make that unique act at a given point and have faith in ourselves and in the process and yeah, choose that unique act and that faith over the certainty and the comfort of what we already know. We're gonna end on that note. Thank you again, Amina. You're welcome, Yalka. Thank you so much for having me. It was it was a delightful moment. Thank you, thank you, Amina. Hey y'all, thank you for tuning in. Please remember to subscribe, leave a review, and share the episode. Be sure to also follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Turning Point Diaries. Kume, until next time. Exile Dynamics featuring more box. Sound engineering by Wheels Kids.